It's good to be back with you this morning uh, after having been away uh, last week. I hope that you had a, uh, a wonderful Christmas time, in the words of um, Paul McCartney um, and Wings. Um, but it just flew by, didn't it? I mean, it just flew by. Uh, it was funny, on the night of, of Christmas Day, uh, I was putting Patrick to bed, and, and he articulated something uh, that I wonder if some of us, maybe many of us have felt, maybe this year, maybe before, he basically said something to, to the effect of, is that it? Is that it? It's like Christmas disappointment. You know, there's this, this giant buildup towards Christmas, and, and then just like that, it's over. Maybe next year we'll buy him some presents. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but, you know, seeing the look on his face, this kind of disappointment. Um, I, I reached down deep in search of something that would, that would console him, that would offer him comfort. And, and what I began to explain to Patrick was that Christmas isn't just one day. Oh, no. Um, it, it actually lasts for 12 days. The, the 12 days of Christmas. Pipers piping and lords a-leaping, maids a-milking. Now, it, truth be told... Our family does absolutely nothing that celebrates the so-called 12 days of Christmas. Our, our, our tree was up until yesterday, but, but that, that's not what that is um, or was. But throughout the history of the church, many Christians have celebrated Christmas for 12 days. And the way it works is you know, before Christmas, you, you have Advent, and Advent is decidedly not Christmas, but, but the longing for Christmas to come. And then you have Christmas for for 12 days. And then on January 6th, something else happens. You have the season of Epiphany. Epiphany begins. Epiphany being this notion of of grasping the meaning of something, to to have an aha moment where where you begin to, to get it. And the season of Epiphany celebrates the idea that that God's Messiah is becoming increasingly known. Now here at GCC, we're not big on on the broader church calendar. Uh, We hit the high and holy days of Christmas and Easter. But but we don't prioritize what what some might consider the, the lesser days. And to be clear, this is not some subtle attempt to try to start doing this. Just to be clear. But having spent some time around those who, who do appeal to the church calendar, I can see some value in it. One of the reasons that I think it can be valuable is that it, it slows down our reading of things. and allows us to, to really go deep, to dig deep in the events around Christ's birth. And so we don't just squeeze it all in and then say, is that it? Um, and so today, being January 6th, that does not land on a, on a Sunday every year. Thirteen days after Christmas, I thought we might reflect for a few moments on, on the text that has traditionally been associated with the day of Epiphany, the story of the, the wise men who, who came from the east to see Jesus. And contrary to, to what we frequently see in our nativity scenes, the wise men are not present at Jesus' birth. These events take place much later, perhaps much, much later. And so with Christmas behind us, 
Let us look at our passage for today. It's from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You can find it on page 12 of your worship folder. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, and when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And behold, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, the, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, I pray now that the, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, give us eyes, give us ears, give us minds, but above all else, give us hearts hearts that are tender to your grace and your mercy found in the gospel. Point us to Jesus, we pray. All in Christ's name. Amen. The title of our message for today is The Good News Spreads. What I want us to do is to look uh, at, at really three points about this good news spreading. First of all, to whom does the good news spread? Secondly, how does this good news spread? And, and lastly, why? To what, to what end? For what purpose does this good, good news spread? Those are going to serve as our three points for the day. To whom, the, the, to whom does the good news spread? How does the good news spread? And third, why does the good news spread? First, to whom does the good news spread? Now, I suspect that most of us, we, we know the song, right? We three kings of Orient are. Great song. Great song, one of my favorites. And I don't, I don't want to burst any bubbles here. But as far as its accuracy is concerned, there, there may be some problems, okay? First of all, it does not tell us that there are three. Three, three gifts are mentioned, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And that's often taken to imply that, that there were three people who arrived. I mean, I, 
I, I half wonder if it's because, you know, we don't want our nativity scene to have like 200 wise men. So we just, we'll stick, we'll, we'll just reduce it down to three, save the space on the counter. But the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that there are only three people present. And given the fact that, that the arrival of, of these wise men caused so much commotion, I tend to think there are probably a good many more who came to see Jesus. Also, these guys aren't kings. Okay, First one of our translation tells us that, that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And, and this rendering of the term wise men, okay, I don't know what you hear with that, but I suspect it's you know, intelligence, sophistication, scholars, educated people. And that, that resonates with us, right? But after all, we, you know, we, we want to be smart people who like Jesus. And so wise men, yes, I'm like, wise men can follow Jesus. I can follow Jesus. You can be wise and follow Jesus. And I'm not, don't hear me disparaging that at all. But, but we can appreciate the fact that educated people want to see Jesus. And it's nice to know that. But it's possible that, that we might miss something with this translation of wise men. The, the Greek term here is magos, which can be translated magi. Get that. And what were the magi? Well, this word, magos, it's the word from which we get our word magic, magician. And when you hear magician, I don't want you he- hearing like, you know, the cute kid pulling bunnies out of his hat, you know, that kind of, at a birthday party or something. That, that's, that's not the type of ma- magic we're, we're talking about here. I want you to think of the occult, sorcerers, wizards, things of that nature. And these guys are astronomers slash astrologers. Those things kind of get merged in this day and age. And and so they not only study the stars, they they have a spirituality that's based on the stars, right? And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that this is really not something that God's all that crazy about. I mean, the prophet Isaiah spends a whole chapter going after this kind of thing. This spirituality that's, that's based on interpreting the stars was actually condemned as a, as a form of pagan idolatry. We even see in the New Testament when the term magos is used other than here. These are figures, I mean, you got Simon the magician, Elamus the, the magician in the book of Acts. Both of these are figures that stand in opposition to the spreading of the gospel. The word magos is not like... That, 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 people would read that in the Greek and it would be like, whoa, whoa, this is crazy talk. So that's who these guys were in terms of their profession, even their religion. But even more importantly, they're, they're from the east, probably not the Orient, um, more likely from, from Babylon or, or Persia. We really don't know exactly where. But here's what we do know. These guys are emphatically not Jewish. These guys are as Gentile as it gets. And yet, they make the trek for thousands of miles, potentially, to go and find the king of the Jews. And the strangeness of this should not be lost on us. What in the world 
are these guys doing here? And yet throughout the Old Testament, there was this constant refrain of the greatness of Israel's God. Okay? Israel's God, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, capital in the Old Testament, was above all the other gods that the nations would bow down to. Okay? All the other gods are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Israel's God is, is the God. And yet, you also would see in Scripture language describing how one day Israel's God will be worshipped, will be received, will be celebrated by non-Jewish people. And it's not some sense of like some least common denominator God that we can all, we all believe in God, but we're all really talking about different kind of gods kind of thing. They're saying that they will believe in L-O-R-D Yahweh, the God of Israel. Israel's God will be worshipped by the nation. This, This exclusive God has an inclusive mission. We saw it in our call to worship today, Isaiah 60, Psalm 72. What these guys are saying is the nation's The Gentiles will come and worship Israel's God. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. These folks, with all their religious, all their spiritual, all their moral baggage, traveling thousands of miles, potentially, to come and find the king of the Jews. And what will be a foreshadowing of the rest of the New Testament which will ultimately culminate at the end with Revelation 5. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing at the feet of Jesus. This invitation to the nations, to anyone who would come, to sinners. Again, moral baggage these guys are carrying with them. That's who's there. Can you appreciate that for a moment? I mean, think about us right now, okay? I dare say we probably didn't look very much like those people 2,000 years ago traveling. Probably looked pretty different. We're probably pretty far away right now. Think about geography. I mean, halfway around the world. It's been 2,000 years since the events that we're talking about, which we are, we're saying this is true. This really did happen. And yet here we are this morning coming here and giving praise to Israel's God, to Yahweh, to the Father of Jesus Christ, bringing all of our need, all of our brokenness, all of our mess, people with different skin colors, people with different languages, all coming and worshiping Jesus, finding grace through Jesus. These guys are outsiders. They have no business here, and yet they're here. Because God is not simply, and here's the point, God is not simply the Savior of Israel. He's the Savior of the world. He has a global project. But how? How how does this, this good news get spread? Okay, How does it go from sort of concentrated in Israel to expanding to the whole globe? And brings us to our second point for today. How does the good news spread? Well, the star, of course. The star. The star guides them to Jesus. 
Yes. But before we get to the star, I want to back up for a moment, okay? And consider, first of all, I mean, how have these people from the East even come to know about the nation of Israel and about their future king? How do they have any interest in their king at all? How has this come about? Well, one theory, which I think is extremely plausible, I think it makes a lot of sense, is that these folks became familiar with Israel and these, these prophecies through the Babylonian captivity. See, back in the Old Testament, God's people were, were, were taken from their land in 586 B.C. and taken all the way to what would sort of be present-day Iraq, Iran, that area. They were forced five centuries prior to, to, to leave their home and be taken to and live as strangers in a strange land. And, and some of the folks that did this were guys like Daniel, the prophet Daniel, with a book in the Old Testament, a book that talks about the coming of the Son of Man in chapter 7. Think about this. I mean, how do these people know anything about Israel, anything about their, their future king? Whatever the case may be, these wise men have been exposed to the people of God longing for their coming king. Somewhere along the way, whether it's the Babylonian captivity or, or some other means, these people have been exposed to the words, to the writings, to the thoughts, to, to the hopes and, and, and aspirations, to the dream that God's, that, 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 that the king of the Jews will one day come. And it's had such an impact that, that five centuries later, these magi are celebrating the arrival of the king of the Jews. It's quite possible that God used his people's presence in a faraway land in exile centuries earlier to prepare a future generation for the coming of this king. And so these magi begin to follow the star. Now, as far as you know, what this star was, many have attempted to offer some speculation, a scientific explanation, perhaps. It was a supernova. It was a, it was a comet. And that, if that's your thing, great. Okay? That, that can be a fun exercise. But, but the reality is that it's not all that, that helpful for our discussion here. Because the bottom line was that, that verse 2 tells us that these men thought it was his star, his star being the, the king of the Jews Star, it's Jesus' star, by which these, these magi, these astrologers, were drawn to the king of the Jews by what they had seen. Or, to put it a different way, that God was using whatever they were seeing to draw them to Jesus. I want us to stop and think about that for a moment. I mean, what, what, what are we doing here? Okay, the, the scriptures, like I said before, I mean, God has already spoken pretty emphatically, I don't really care for all of this astrology business. And yet, what do we see God doing? But guiding people through what? The stars. Seems a little odd. I mean, what get, does, did God not mean what he said before? Or has he changed his mind? Maybe that star business isn't all that... That big a deal after all. Or perhaps maybe something else is going on. 
which is what I'll argue is the case. I mean, whether it's right or wrong is irrelevant. Here's the deal. The language that these people spoke was stars. The way these people understood the world around them, what was right and true and good and beautiful, was, was, was by interpreting stars. And God, in his infinite kindness and grace, is willing to speak stars. Willing to speak their language. To guide them. E- even by means that he isn't all that crazy about. Is on the record for not being all that crazy about. That God can use something like stars to guide people to his truth. Doesn't make it good. Matthew's not saying, you know, we, re- we really need to reevaluate this whole star business. Um, he's not doing that. But God is using his creation to speak to the Magi. But here's one thing. I mean, one doesn't have to be an astrologer to appreciate the fact that creation itself can point us to truth about God. And scripture acknowledges this to be the case. You see passages like Psalm 19 states plainly, heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above declares God's handiwork. That the world around us, created by God, has his fingerprints all over it. And that we can learn a great deal about God. You can learn a great deal about God by simply observing creation. Paul echoes this in Romans 1. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature are clearly seen in the things that have been made. That God speaks loudly in creation about who he is. This concept often referred to as as general revelation. The idea that, that God does speak through what has been made. It's general in the sense that all human beings have access to God's revelation of himself through what's been made. And much again, again, much can be learned about the world we live in and our own existence and, and ultimately God by studying the world around us. But as valuable as general revelation may be, there's a problem with general revelation. It's a problem we see in our, in our passage here. It can only get you so far. We see quite literally in our passage. I mean, the Magi are guided to where? To Jerusalem by creation. And then they begin asking everybody, where's, where's the king of the Jews? Herod gets wind of the search, and he is presently holding that office, so not too crazy about that whole question. Um, and so he summons chief priests, scribes, tell us, where, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Tell us what the scriptures say. And the answer comes back in no uncertain terms. Bethlehem, of course. Micah 5 says so. The scriptures say so. And so the Magi begin to travel to Bethlehem. And then the star reappears. And they're guided right to Jesus. As one of my favorite authors put it, the star brings us to Jerusalem, but only Scripture can get us to Bethlehem. And there's something very profound here. Without the Scripture, these magi don't find Jesus. After all, they're thinking king, they're thinking palace, they're thinking big city, they're thinking capital, they're going to the establishment. But it was not until they were exposed to God's special revelation that they were exposed to Jesus. 
Same principle continues to be true for us. That the way this good news, the way this gospel is spread is through God's revealing of himself in his word. His word that points us to the word made flesh. That for human beings to know much about God. Again, we can learn about God from study and creation. But to know more, to know God relationally, to know him personally, to know him intimately, to come into his presence and experience his kindness and grace, God has to reveal himself. And he has in the scriptures, which is much more than just a bunch of stories or letters or poems. We believe it's the very word of God that exists to point us to Jesus. And so for us to know Jesus, for us to, to meet Jesus, to, to engage with Jesus, for, for us to even now experience this gospel, for it to be something that, that we're trusting in and clinging to and, and living out the implications of in our life, we, we don't simply need to be exposed to God's word. We need to be immersed in God's word. And that's individually And collectively, as a congregation too. And for this good news to spread to other people, those who have the Scriptures and acknowledge the Scriptures to be what they are, God uses our faithfulness to them and our communication of them so that other people might know this good news as well. So how does this good news go forward? It goes forward through God's revelation. And those embracing God's revelation for what it is. But why? I mean, why, to what end does this message go forward? What, what is the, what's the end game? What's the purpose? This gets us to our final point for the day. Why has God spread, or why is this good news spread? In verse 2, these wise men, these, these magi state very plainly why they are there. We have come to worship him. Now, I don't know about you, we hear that word worship, right? I'm curious what, what comes to mind. I suspect that for, for most of us, the image that comes to mind is probably like, like this, right? What, what are we doing right now? This is worship. We get together, and we sing songs, we pray prayers, confess our sin, confess our faith, hear God's promises, we listen to a sermon, we receive the Lord's Supper, I mean, and that, 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 that's worship. And you'll get no argument from me on this matter. Corporate worship. This is a time that God has, has carved out. He's, he's designated, he's designed it for us as God's people to worship together because there's beauty and iron sharpening iron and being encouraged by one another as we give our gifts to one another. As, as we are strengthened in this time together. This is like no other experience. But the fact that we believe in the value of, of corporate worship doesn't mean that, that the notion of worship is simply limited to sort of Sunday morning service type deal. In Romans chapter 12, Paul makes it clear. I mean, Offering yourselves as living sacrifice, sacrifices in view of God's mercies, in light of the gospel, 
our spiritual worship language he uses is to offer ourselves. And when do we do that? All the time. I mean, that's a constant reality. Worship takes place all of the time. Worship is the attitude of the heart. Worship is the attitude of one who has been captivated, their heart has been captivated by the object of their worship, which makes what these magi are doing fascinating because they aren't Jews. They've never seen this object of worship before. And yet, it's captured their imaginations. They, they paint this picture, this extreme devotion of what it means to worship something. I mean, we can read verse 1. You know, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, that's quite the summary statement. It's kind of like, you know, Back in 1776, there was a nation, and it was founded, and now we're here. Okay? I mean, a lot goes into that little statement. This was a long, 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 long trek that, that got them there. Quite the arduous journey. I mean, quite the sacrifice. Thousands of miles on a camel across the desert. Because, all because... This object of worship has suddenly taken on priority in their hearts over every other allegiance. I mean, this is what worship is. For someone or something to, to, to be valued, appreciated, you're, you're devoted to this object over and above every other competitor, over their political allegiances. I mean, by coming to worship this king, they don't understand that this is necessarily God. I mean, this is the king of the Jews. By coming to worship this king, if they're worshiping this king, then who are they not worshiping? Their king. You don't worship all these kings. To worship a king is to say, this is the place where ultimate allegiance goes. And Herod got this, by the way. Herod understood, this is why he is so paranoid here. He wants to find this young king so he can supposedly worship him. When in fact, what he wants to do is exterminate him. Because it's the competition. But it's more than just political. I mean, worshiping Jesus took priority over familial allegiances. I mean, can you imagine the conversations that took place among these families? We're going to go and find the king of the Jews, and and we'll see you when we see you. To to families? Now, I mean, there's there's something to be considered there, taken into consideration as we think about, you know, the the various callings that we have as husbands and fathers and mothers and, and whatnot. Please hear me being sensitive to that, but... But there's something going on here where they're going, this is, this is the priority. This is where my ultimate worship lies. Jesus has taken priority over their spiritual and religious. Because all of a sudden, stars are great. But this is even better. The stars lead to this. It's taken priority over their finances as well. 
I mean, the gifts they're bringing, this is not something you drop by on your way to a Christmas party at the dollar store just so you got something, right? They've been hauling this for thousands of miles, and they've been hauling a small fortune and ready to give this king of the Jews this fortune. They're they're willing, everything seems to be sacrificed for the sake of coming into presence, into the presence of Jesus, their king, the king of the Jews. All of this points to what true worship does, which is that it captivates our heart. It it captivates our heart and then it propels us into action. And we would be remiss to not point out the contrast between the outsiders who have come to worship Jesus versus the establishment, the insiders, and see their response. And we see Herod's response, which is one of of self-promotion and paranoia and fear at the arrival of this rival king. We see from the the scribes and the chief priests, I mean, they know exactly, okay, y'all are telling us that you got a sign, king is born, we know know where that is, go get him. Um, We're just going to hang out here. We're not all that interested. When you see apathy. You see fear from those people in the community because the status quo is potentially going to get rocked. Over and over again in the scriptures, what you see, and we're going to see this play out in the gospel of Matthew, we see it in the gospel of Luke, we see it throughout the rest of the New Testament, is that the establishment who's supposed to get it doesn't get it. Meanwhile, the outsiders are blown away at what is taking place. And here's why. Because there's a temptation for religious people of this day, of of our day, for, for us even, to rely on our status as God's people as an excuse for apathy. Because the purpose of our salvation is not simply to have some good content, some good information, and be a decent human being and then go to heaven when you die. That's not the purpose of our salvation. We're saved so that the broken relationship that we have with our Creator can be restored and that we can enjoy the blessing and the joy and the satisfaction of knowing him and loving him and serving him. And that does not start when you go to heaven. That starts now. That's the picture of worship that we see here. Now, it would be easy to sort of end the sermon there, right? End it there, okay? We're supposed to go worship. Go out there and I want to see you next Sunday. And I want to see you for the next you know, two months, consistently. Worship better, people. Worship better. Be better worshipers. Go do like that. Go be like those wise men. The problem is, is that there's no good news in that. There's no good news in our response, okay? This good news spreading is not, now people are going to be good, This picture of worship that we see here, it's good, and it's appropriate, but it's not good news. 
Because what we do can't be good news. These men are paying homage to the newborn, to the king of the Jews, and they are given their treasure and their time and their devotion, all of which is the proper response to the king. But the gospel is not about what we give to Jesus, because the reality is our worship is always going to be lacking. And while we should long for it to be different and pray for it to be different, and by God's grace, it can look increasingly like the picture we see of the wise men, it's never perfect. And therefore, it can never be good news. And these gifts that are presented, while I I, I doubt the Magi completely understood this, seem to foreshadow who this infant king is going to be. We see gold given. Gold that acknowledges the reality of of a king. Frankincense, though. What was frankincense? But but the incense used by a priest, a priest, one who, who offers sacrifices on behalf of his people. And myrrh, myrrh, a perfume that was used for burial. All of these gifts actually point to the greatest gift in this story, which is the Christ child, which is Jesus himself, who first and foremost did not come so that we could just simply give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or whatever stuff you want to give to Jesus. Do not hear me discouraging giving things to Jesus. But first and foremost, he came to receive something else from us. He came to receive our sin. To take our sin, and to take our shame, and to take our guilt, and give us something to give us his righteousness, to give us hope, to give us a restored relationship with our maker so that we could glorify him and enjoy him forever. And this message of hope and grace, of forgiveness, is offered to anyone, to anyone, to magi from the east, to apathetic religious people, to hostile tyrants like Herod, to anyone who would come and worship. And the Magi will leave at the end, and they will return. They will turn back to where they're from. And they will plant seeds as this gospel goes forward, as this good news that Israel's king has come. He's come to rescue broken, needy people. He's come to turn the world upside down because he has. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for for the example of the Magi. Certainly, Lord, they they point us to what you deserve, the way you ought to be revered and respected. We give you thanks also for the object of our worship as well. for the fact that you have come and you have come to rescue needy people like us, would that, not some expectation that we're supposed to be better, but would our genuine love and devotion for who you are and for what you've done for us propel us, captivate our hearts, capture our imaginations, and propel us forward to a life of service? pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.